Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, Tom, you know, we have two uh, academic studies that have streaked across the internet these days that are somewhat relevant to internal controls and corporate compliance programs. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance topic. This week, we look at two rather obscure academic papers which shed light on how communications to corporations can reduce the risk of accounting fraud and overall fraud and violations of SEC rules. It's a fascinating look at a really untapped source of information for the compliance practitioner about how ongoing communications can help make your ethics and compliance program more vibrant. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we go completely into the weeds with obscure academic study episode. And we're going to take a look at some uh, academic studies that have intrigued Matt and actually uh, inform your compliance program. So, Matt, what obscure academic studies have you come across and how do you see them as informing compliance? Well, Tom, you know, we have two uh, academic studies that have streaked across the internet these days that are somewhat relevant to internal controls and corporate compliance programs. Uh, One of them is about the uh, effect that the Dodd-Frank SEC Whistleblower Awards Program has had on uh, the risk of accounting fraud at large companies. And the other one is actually even more obscure. It is the effect that local SEC offices' Twitter feeds have on regional rates of corporate misconduct, including accounting fraud, insider trading, or complaints about registered investment advisors and their misconduct. And yes, there is uh, some enterprising academic minds out there have researched both of these subjects and found that there are discernible, measurable effects that uh, these, I guess, efforts from the regulatory world have on corporate compliance. So we can talk about either one. Well, I'll let you take your pick which obscure study you want to go with first. But I'd like to start with the whistleblower study and how uh, the authors were able to come up with at least a working thesis that whistleblower awards can cut a fraud risk um, within within companies. Um, And uh, since you can't defriend me on LinkedIn, uh, you're going to have to explain to me uh, the mathematics and statistical model that they came up with. And it can't just be E equals MC squared. It is a bit more than that. So this was a study that was published in January by uh, Philip Berger, who is a management professor at the University of Chicago, and Heeman Lee, who is a management and business professor at City University of New York. 
Uh, and if you really want to look up these studies, you can. All of the studies we're going to talk about today are on the SSRN network, which is a distribution feed of economic and social science uh, research papers. But anyways, think about the problem here. It feels right that when SEC whistleblower awards came into force, that must have put more pressure on companies not to commit accounting fraud because whistleblowers out there could report the accounting fraud and now they might be able to get part of the settlement that might come from it, right? That seems to make sense. But how would you actually measure that? Because there's no control group here. When the SEC adopted its whistleblower awards in 2011, that rule went into effect all at once for all public companies. So you can't easily say, well, here are all the public companies that are subject to SEC awards and we'll compare their fraud rates against those that aren't. Everybody was. So what did Mr. Berger and uh, Mr. Lee actually do? They looked at, and this is really ingenious, they looked at the rates of accounting fraud that were reported under state-level False Claims Act statutes. Because when you think about it, so False Claims Act at the federal level, uh, that prohibits anybody from overcharging the government for services rendered. And a lot of times it's about, say, billing fraud in Medicare or Medicaid or procurement fraud. Uh, Either you are billing the government too much or you are delivering less than promised. Well, there are state-level False Claims Act statutes, too. And for some states, you can bring key TAM lawsuits where whistleblowers get part of the award, just like at the federal False Claims Act level, and even more. Uh, In some states, because their pension funds invest in publicly traded companies, if those publicly traded companies commit accounting fraud, they have violated the state's False Claims Act statute. But that's only the case in about, I think, 18 or 19 or so states where that actually exists. And then all the other states that have False Claims Act statutes, you can't have whistleblower lawsuits filed over accounting fraud. There's your control group. You have some states that have long been pressured for accounting fraud, and you have some other states where companies don't face that whistleblower pressure at the state level. So what they did through a big, long equation, I have a picture of in my blog, I cannot explain what it all means, but there's a lot of symbols. It looks to be about this long, the equation. But they compared how did companies that were not subject to state False Claims Act lawsuits in the past, what was their rate of accounting fraud back then, before Dodd-Frank? What is their rate of accounting fraud now, after Dodd-Frank? And when you do it all, you find that through all of their clever statistical analysis, the Dodd-Frank whistleblower provisions have reduced the rate of fraud anywhere from 11 to 22 percent. It's a range. Why exactly is it that range? I'm not entirely sure, but it jibes with the theory that uh, if there are now whistleblower incentives to report accounting fraud to the SEC, that probably pressures companies to say, oh, geez, let's make sure we're not committing accounting fraud because there's that much more risk that we could face enforcement. And so they found it. The next academic study uh, comes to us from a Yale uh, PhD candidate. The um, Initially, when I read your blog post, I was a little uh, surprised. But then 
when your second blog came out this week, uh, and I started thinking about it in the context of your earlier blog post, it seems to me to uh, actually uh, logically fit a pattern. And I'm going to hold that thought till the end so you can tell us about SEC tweeting and how that seems to cut misconduct. Yeah, so this was a study that was done uh, also, I think, earlier this year or late last year by a Ph.D. accounting student at the Yale School of Management by the name of Jinji Lin, who does have her own website where she announces that she is on the job market for 21-22. So uh, good for her for contributing to the uh, literature here on internal controls and regulatory enforcement. Maybe she'll get a job out of this. She looked at the rates of tweeting at the various, I think there are a total of 11 SEC regional offices around the country, and how many public companies are in their jurisdictions, how many registered investment advisors, how often do these regional offices tweet, how many followers do they have? And again, through a lot of statistical analysis that I am not entirely sure I understand because I flunked statistics in college, um, but I promise I read all of these studies very carefully, uh, she found that the more active an SEC regional office is, the less there is incidence of insider trading, uh, accounting fraud, or complaints about registered investment advisors in that region. Why? Well, her thesis is that because these SEC offices are so robust, tweeting about uh, their enforcement actions, uh, about how they are on the lookout for fraud, uh, various tips investing public and consumers might want to keep in mind about potential fraud. The more robust the Twitter feed is for that region, presumably, the more companies in that region might see it and then say, oh, yeah, geez, the, those guys are on the case. I want to make sure I'm not doing this. Uh, so specifically, I'll give you some numbers. Uh, she found that the opening of a Twitter account by a regional office reduces uh, insider trading, I think she says opportunistic trades, uh, in that jurisdiction, she reduces that misconduct by about 5%. The use of Twitter by regional offices reduces the likelihood of customer complaints against advisors in that jurisdiction by point, or 0.53%. Uh, and then there is another 0.5% reduction in the probability of financial fraud. Um, so what are we supposed to do with that? I'm not quite sure. I don't care. It's fun. It's interesting. Um, and it just, it does feel right that the more robust a SEC office is with talking about what it's doing, the more likely it is people are going to hear about that. It's going to stick in the brain and you're going to have at least some attempt at better conduct. And if that's what's happening, I don't really care why I'm just here for good corporate conduct. So actually, um, you also included in your the first blog post we talked about the whistleblower study for FCA cases. You referenced the uh, Kyle Welch study, and I want to include this in my next set of remarks because I've been thinking about these two blog posts, and really, uh, I think that it does mean something, and I think it means something significant. And I'd like to pitch it to you and see if I can convince you of it. So. What it seems to be is what you just ended with, which is if, if you talk about something more in a forum where companies are listening, uh, they will pay attention to that information. And in this, in case one was the FCA or False Claims Act, uh, if there were more False Claims Act cases at the state level, other companies heard about it. 
The blog post on SEC tweets is similar because it's information coming out from the regulator here, the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, about uh, violations of, of SEC law, SEC enforcement, or, or other reminders of don't do or don't violate these laws. And that seems to give us some information that the more you talk, generally companies are picking up on this, whether they're picking up the, in the first case, lawyers in the general counsel office are reading about uh, competitors or others uh, being accused of False Claims Act claims. Uh, and the second one are the um, internal auditors or the compliance folks or somebody in corporations seeing these tweets. And this is not down to the individual training level or individual communication level. It's at a different level. It's at the corporate level. And the corporations are taking this information and then translating it into some type of effective program to prevent these types of claims from coming forward. So it seems to me this is actually significant, and here I have convinced myself even more without even asking what you think, but uh, that if we remind companies more in a straightforward, cost-effective manner, uh, you know, what's the cost of a tweet, and get this kind of result, uh, this is information that a compliance, the greater compliance community can use, and now, then we have to try to determine what's the quantum or the cadence, rather, for uh, optimizing these communications going forward. I don't have, I mean, I believe that is true. I don't have a good answer to what is the proper cadence for all of this, but I think that's an excellent point that you raise. And for anybody not familiar with Kyle Welch's research, it's a couple of years old now, but he has documented that uh, companies that have a higher rate of internal reporting relative to their peers... Uh, they have score better on a host of business performance metrics, including a lot that are, I'll say, like hardcore performance. I mean, yes, you have fewer lawsuits and they settle for smaller amounts. That makes sense. But also return on assets, which is a key financial performance metric about how much revenue you bring in given the total amount of corporate assets that you have. Um, and I've always thought that makes sense when you think about it because the more internal reporting a company has, that's really saying the more the company's workforce is eager to discuss and resolve problems, which is what you want if you're a manager. Uh, and Tom, I hadn't also I hadn't thought about this yet until I was listening to you. But another group that has found a similar sort of conclusion is Ethisphere, where. Ethisphere publishes their list of most ethical companies every year. They do a lot of research into how highly ethical companies, how do those things, those companies work? What do they do? And one of the commonalities that they have found in highly ethical and highly successful companies is that the managers there, they just talk about ethics a lot. And that's it. Not necessarily because it's in some formal instruction or training that they have to have. It's just the managers talk a lot very informally about ethics. And really, that's what we have been talking about here for this whole podcast is just the amount of tweets that get sent out, the amount of internal reporting. And now here's Ethisphere talking about how success can be judged by how often managers just talk about ethics and drum up the conversation. And I guess it becomes that that philosophical presence in the background as you go about your daily duties, and that leads to better conduct, or at least a sharper awareness of the risks of misconduct. 
So let's make sure that we have strong internal controls to address that. It seems to be where a lot of the the research is kind of sort of pointing in that direction. And again, a lot of it just feels right at the gut level. Intuitively, it seems to agree with common sense. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and be right back. The first time I read uh, these two blog posts, the first thing I thought of was the policing policy of broken windows, which uh, generally says that uh, we're going to police around areas where there are violations of relatively minor laws. The more I thought about it, this is not that at all. This is simply a communication about your rights and responsibilities, uh, certainly on the SEC tweets and on the F. FCA-type cases, it's, uh, once again, a reminder that what can go wrong if you do violate the law. So I don't think this is really broken windows. This is something else that's going on, and it's a a level of communication that we really, uh, I agree with you on a gut level, it makes perfect sense, but we really haven't thought about it in terms of, this is not communication down to an individual, as the ethosphere example uh, is, where middle managers or others are keeping that conversation going. But it shows that once you have that conversation going, literally externally as well as internally, it can be a positive uh, moving the compliance ball forward, I think. You know, I think that is probably true. And honestly, though, I would even put more of a pragmatic uh, spin on this, is that a lot of this research... This can actually be used to justify why are you investing in anti-fraud controls, in internal reporting uh, mechanisms and whatnot. Well, because, guys, there's real money involved here. Uh, One of the other interesting points that Berger and Lee brought up in their study about accounting fraud is that, according to other research, in any given year out there, roughly 10 to 11 percent of large companies are committing accounting fraud somehow. I'm not accusing the management of being willfully involved in it. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But that's a lot of companies that might be experiencing some type of fraud. And when they are, moreover, there's other research that also shows the frauds are committing like roughly 1.9% uh, they trim off of the market cap of these companies. Like that's real money. So if you do the math, which Berger and Lee do, if you have this range of 12 to 22% of a reduction in fraud. Well, let's pick the middle there, 17%. If you reduce by 17%, the 11% of companies that are committing fraud and costing 1.9% of market cap, that is actually saving roughly 0.3% of market cap. Now, for a large S&P 500 firm, that's a lot of money. That is much more money than you're going to be spending on software to implement a training program or software to implement internal controls. So I would say that even though there is a risk that this money, you know, like what's the real return on investment here? You know, probably you're not committing fraud. But if you are, the extra expense of going that little bit further is going to pay off a lot more compared to the potential threat to your market cap 
once that fraud gets discovered. That's a very good point worth mentioning to audit committees, worth mentioning to the CEO or the CFO as they're doing budget approvals, is because this sort of stuff can have a real ROI. It's just it only happens when everything hits the fan and you've got a big issue you need to sort through, but you will certainly be better off investing a bit now so that it never does hit the fan and you don't have to worry about that payoff. So I think that's another good point in contribution uh, of these professors who are researching these issues. So I guess to end, Matt, I'm going to encourage you to continue to read obscure academic papers and see what lessons not only that we can learn, but uh, maybe how we can uh, move the compliance ball forward. This uh, turned out to be a really fun uh, podcast. You know, we should uh, give thanks to uh, the student there, Jinjing Li and uh, Jinji Lin, and Professors Berger and Lee, and all the other professors who are toiling away. This is hard stuff to do, hard data to gather, numbers to crunch, and they are making a very good, positive contribution to what we're trying to do. So we all do owe them a bit of thanks here. But uh, yeah, this certainly is a fascinating look at what's out there. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you will check out my latest podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network. The podcast is called ESG Compliance. And in this podcast series, I take a deep dive into the intersection of ESG and compliance. If you're a compliance professional or you're an ESG aficionado, this will be the podcast for you. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network beginning February 8th. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.